Hello and welcome to the Five Red Lights podcast. I'm your host Aaron and the Five Red Lights are on. See you at the finish line. This week, we should have been dissecting the Monaco Grand Prix, but due to the coronavirus outbreak, it's been cancelled. And it won't be back on the calendar for uh, the rest of the year, unfortunately. We do always look forward to Monaco, even if the race itself doesn't always deliver as a great contest. It does have a reputation for being processional, perhaps fairly so, but the limited area obviously contributes to that. When there is a more exciting race, though, they really are quite something. So today, I've picked five of the best from Monaco's long history as a Grand Prix. So let's get stuck into them. Nineteen eighty-two is the first race that we're going to look at, and it was quite unbelievable. They re-ran this on the F1 YouTube channel as the uh, F1 Classics. Rene Arnoux starts on pole position for Renault, takes an early lead. And his teammate Alain Prost, I wonder what happened to him afterwards, uh, he took a second place, he took second place on lap four. So Renault were running one and two until lap 14. Rene Arnoux is in the lead, comfortable, but then inexplicably he spins as he comes into the swimming pool chicane. Can't get the car going again because he's stalled it and Prost is allowed then to take the lead. Prost now seemingly seems set for victory. This is before he picks up his uh, professor nickname, but he shows all the credentials of why it uh, was given to him later in his career. We reach lap 71. Prost is still in the lead. Comes out of the tunnel through the seafront chicane, uh, which was slightly different, slightly more high speed back in 82. Loses control of the car, though, on the exit uh, as he comes out of the chicane. Drops it on a slippery track, slams into the wall on the right-hand side, bounces back across to the other Armco barrier. Wheels are missing, bits of bodywork are falling off. He's out of the race. Ricardo Patrese now assumes the lead in the Brabham. But on lap 75, he spins at the Lowe's hairpin on oil dropped from another car. And it seems like he's out of the race as well. Didier Peroni and the Ferrari moves into the lead. Only for him to run out of fuel on lap 76. The last lap. As he enters the tunnel. Unbelievable. Andrea De Cesaris in the Alfa Romeo now stands to take the lead. But he's run out of fuel too. And he can't even pass the Ferrari. And it, it just goes from crazy to absolutely bonkers. Because... Who was the man who was in third place, Derek Daly, now the race leader. Um, but he can't take the lead either because he was still on lap 75, but he's had an accident and he's got gearbox problems. So he, he doesn't take the lead either. And we have this brilliant bit of commentary from uh, uh, the BBC's world champion commentator, uh, the 1976 world champion, James Hunt. He goes, well, we've got this ridiculous situation where we're sitting, we're all sitting by the start finish line 
waiting for a winner to come past, and we don't seem to be getting one. <laughs> it tells the story of what's going on, and it's quite funny. It was a really good uh, piece of commentary from James. In the end, after rolling down the hill from Lowe's Hairpin and bump-starting his Brabham, Ricardo Patrese eventually <laughs> takes the win. Um, and the classification is a, it's a slightly... <laughs> It's a slightly mad one because Patrese, I think, is the only person who actually crosses the line and completes all the laps. Uh, Peroni's classified second, even though he didn't finish the final lap. And De Cesaris is classified third, even though he didn't finish the, the, the final lap. Complete madness. Patrese takes his first win. And it, it sums up a, a, a crazy season. Um, Keke Rosberg went on to win the World Championship that year. Won a single race. Could, could you imagine winning a, a world champion this generation, winning one race and going on to be world champion? It just, it wouldn't happen. It just can't happen nowadays. <laughs> Moving on to our second race then that we're going to look at, uh, 1992. And my heading for this is the immovable McLaren versus the irresistible Williams. It's that famous battle between... Nigel Mansell and Ayrton Senna. Mansell never did win in Monaco, but 92 was his best chance and the closest he ever came to winning in the Principality. He had the all-conquering FW14B, he started on pole, and he surged into a huge lead, and it all seemed to be going his way. He'd won five races in a row, wanted to take the sixth. He desperately, desperately wanted to win around Monaco. Lap 71, though. This is becoming a bit of a theme, lap 71, isn't it? Prost crashing on lap 71. Mansell now, lap 71, picks up a puncture. Has to pit. It's a good stop from the Williams team. Not as efficient as uh, they are nowadays. Nowhere near. They don't have uh, overalls on. They're still in their, in their uh, collared shirts and their shorts. But he loses the lead, most importantly, to Senna. Comes out seven seconds behind. Fresh tyres, though. So that's important. Around any other track, I think... It would be, you know, a game set and match. But around Monaco, it's not, you know, the end of the world, but <laughs> it's a severe handicap. So Mansell's seven seconds back, a couple of back markers in, in the way. He gets past them, and then he reduces the gap to almost nothing with three laps remaining, sets repeated new lap records on his fresh tyres. And obviously Senna would have known that Mansell was going to close because the, the Williams that year was... Uh, head, shoulders, waist, above everything else um, on the grid. Uh, and Senna was forced into using all of his skill and all of his talent, every single ounce of it, to keep Mansell back. Mansell was swarming all over the back of the McLaren Honda. And you, if you look, go back and look at the the, uh, the video of it, and you just wouldn't see driving like that nowadays. Mansell is weaving left and weaving right and he's right under the rear wing and he's desperately trying to force a mistake but Senna puts his car in all the right places and that is to say right in the middle of the road at Monaco you can't get past either way and the cars that uh, that year were quite wide the big fat wide tyres at the rear tricky but Mansell had a clear speed advantage um Desperately trying to find a wedge to put the Williams through. Senna simply wouldn't allow it though. He fends him off, takes his fifth win at Monaco. 
uh, in fifth in six years, and he he took his sixth in what tragically turned out to be his last uh, ever Monaco race in '93. What really made me enjoy this battle not not just for the the racing of it. Uh, what really enjoyed, made me enjoy it more was the the commentary from Murray Walker and James Hunt. Uh, this is a year before James Hunt passes away as well. It's just fabulous commentary. Murray Walker, you can hear his excitement, but he's able to convey the action in a way that you can still understand and engage with what's going on. It's just fabulous commentary. And James Hunt, he had his <laughs> had his opinions, but everything he said was absolutely spot on, bang on the money, uh, and again, really relatable. Bear in mind as well, in these days, they uh, she had a single microphone, which to to have their their fluidity is um, quite remarkable. Although sometimes nowadays you can have commentators talking over each other, which can get a little bit in the way of uh, how you enjoy some races. That's a, that's a different topic. Number three then on our on my uh, top five at Monaco Grand Prix is 1996. And only three survive is my uh, heading <laughs> on my notes. And this is a race that embodies the term a race of attrition. Michael Schumacher starts on pole in the uh, Ferrari. It wasn't a great Ferrari in 96. He just joined them from uh, his uh, two championships at Benetton. And uh, Damon Hill partners him on the uh, front row of the grid. Hill gets ahead into Sandovot at turn one. Um, but it's wet. They're struggling for grip. And Schumacher is the rain master. He'd won, um, he'd won the... Uh, I think it was before this, the uh, 96 Spanish Grand Prix in Barcelona in absolutely treacherous conditions. But in this race, he gets to Portier, the, the uh, right hand, the first right hander, the first part of Portier, um, gets onto the curb, slides wide into the Armco barrier, crushes the front left suspension, the wheel is damaged, everything, and he just slides off into the little escape road out of the race on lap one of all people to crash on lap one Michael Schumacher back then it was just unthinkable so Hill is still in the lead a little bit further back Heinz Howard Frensen is trying to pass Eddie Irvine in the second Ferrari and Frensen was in the Sauber at this point and as they come down to Sandovot on lap 18 he makes contact and breaks his front wing which allows David Coulthard to pass in the McLaren. And this is quite significant uh, later on. So Damon Hill, still in the lead. He's not one at Monaco either. Similarly to Mansell, as we were speaking about earlier. And obviously he had his dad to live up to. His dad was known as Mr. Monaco. Obviously his dad was Graham Hill, five times a winner um, around the streets of Monaco. So Hill stops for dry tyres on lap 27, everyone being very cautious about when to pit for dries. Frensen had already come in uh, after his um, tangle with Irvine, put on the dries and was going 10 seconds a lap faster, which was incredible. So Hill stops, comes out behind the Benetton of Jean Alesi, retakes the lead on lap 29. 
driving past the Benetton up the hill to Massenet uh, out of Saint-Devot. And from there, he looks set to win. Uh, we reach lap 36, and a man who we haven't mentioned yet, uh, Olivier Panis, in the Ligier back then, and they did become the Prost team before they went out of business, he is involved in a collision with Eddie Irvine, a second one for Irvine. So they're coming out of the uh, Mirabeau hairpin, the right-hander plunging down the hill into Lowe's. And Panis sees an opportunity to get by, dives down the inside. It's an optimistic move, and Irvine turns in, but Panis is still there, and Irvine is bumped to the outside to have a chat with the barrier. Panis survives and keeps going. Irvine gets going again, and he pops up later on in the race. Hill is leading still. Lap 40 arrives, and he's, he's over halfway there. And he must have it in his eye. I'm surely going to do it now. Surely this is my moment. 96 was his year. And he looked set to take the win, just as his father did. Mr Monaco on five occasions. But as he enters the tunnel, Damon's dreams are shattered. His Renault engine expires. And he comes out of the tunnel. There's smoke coming out of the back of the car. He goes straight across the seafront chicane into the escape road. And there was more great commentary from Murray Walker. My goodness, the Englishman's heart will be plunging to his boots. Quite an apt expression to describe how uh, Damon would have been feeling. Because I think you could, you, it's something you could almost feel. You know, when you, you're scared or you suffer a real big disappointment, you just feel your heart drop inside you. And usually it drops into your stomach or something like that. Uh, but dropping all the way to his boots... Uh, that's a pretty big disappointment. So Alacy now takes the lead. This is lap 40, and he leads to lap 60, where he comes into the pits, but he's got a suspension failure, and he's stranded in the pit lane out of the race. And this has the lead, importantly, to Olivier Panis, who continues on his merry way through all of the carnage. On lap 71, <laughs> this is a... Uh, I think it's a cursed lap around Monaco. Chaos at Portier. Not just because Michael Schumacher's crashed there. Eddie Irvine in the second Ferrari now decides to have a spin there. So he recovers, spins the car around, but it's a blind right-hander as you come in there. If anyone's played the F1 uh, Formula 1 games, you'll just know as you come to the right-hander, there's a big building on the right-hand side, so you can't see around it. And Monaco's tricky enough as it is. Um... So he spins round, but as he spins round, there's the two Mikas uh, of Mika Salo and Mika Hakkinen, who are coming round the corner nose to tail, and Salo ploughs into the back of Irvine. Hakkinen smashes into Salo, and they're all out of the race. So by this point, through all of this chaos and cars dropping up left, right, and centre, with about seven laps to go. You've got four cars left, <laughs> which is completely mad. So you've got Olivier Panis in the Ligier, leaving David Coulthard in the McLaren, Johnny Herbert in the Sauber, and Heinz Howard Frensen in the other Sauber. Now, Frensen could have been winning this race. If he hadn't made an optimistic move on Irvine and damaged his front wing, he wouldn't have been fourth and last. He would have been in the lead. 
He pits on the final lap uh, when he could have easily been winning the race instead. Um, and Panis ends up taking the win instead. Three drivers finish the race because Frentzen doesn't uh, cross the line. So he retires on the final lap. Ligier, uh, they had another year as Ligier in 97 before they were bought by Prost uh, and rebadged in 98. And that, that was as good as it ever got um, for Ligier. They took a few podiums, but they ne never really got close to winning a race again. Um, it's a shame, really, because Panis was a good driver. He did break his legs in 97. And he, he could have had a chance at a higher team. But he showed his skill on that day. And he uh, made his way through the carnage. Sometimes it's more about survival than it is about being the fastest. And Panis proved that on that day in 1996. Race number four, then. One of my favourites uh, on this list. Um, 2008, Hamilton's mistake setting up a victory. How often do you see a driver make a mistake and they're out of the race, that's it? Or their, their race is severely compromised and there's no way to return it. So this race pretty much is all about Hamilton making a mistake and making amends for it with a little bit of help from the McLaren team. The drama begins before the five red lights go out even. So it rains before the start. And the second McLaren of Kovalainen stalls on the dummy grid. So there's a gap in fourth place. Lewis is starting third behind the two Ferraris of Massa, who's on pole. Raikkonen in second. The lights go up. Hamilton jumps into, into turn one and steals second place. Um, but then lap six, he's chasing Massa. Gets a little bit wide out of the back corner. The fast left-hander bumps the wall on the right-hand side. Right rear puncture. Head to the pits, young man. Lap eight. And there's a safety car. Coulthard and Bourdais have both crashed. They've had exactly the same accident. Um, so they come up over the hill into the left-hander of Massonet, get a bit wide and cream themselves into the barrier on the outside. So Coulthard goes first and then Bourdais has the same accident, slides round and bumps into the back of DC and his crashed Red Bull. So the safety car comes out, Massa leads away as they restart. While they're restarting, Raikkonen is handed a drive-through penalty for not having all of his tyres fitted at the three-minute warning pre-race. So his race is not completely ruined, but very badly compromised. This leaves Robert Kubica chasing Felipe Massa. So Kubica was in the BMW Sauber at this point. And he's close enough to capitalise when Felipe locks a brake into turn one and runs wide. Very costly error in the grand scheme of things it would turn out to be. Massa regains the position from Kibitza through the pit stops. But they're on a different strategy to Hamilton, who, when he had his puncture, some quick thinking from McLaren put him onto a uh, two-stop, or so one-stop from this. It became a two-stop. So they filled him up with fuel, some smart driving, kept him uh, in touch and in play, and his tyres alive. So when the dry line began to appear, he took the lead from Massa. Lap 54, Hamilton pits for dry tyres. 
And he comes up 13 seconds in the lead, having built up a lead of some 37 seconds, sailing out of the, into the lead. And obviously, back then they had the um, refueling. So by this point, Massa and Kibitza were fat on fuel, and Hamilton was very skinny. So he was able to put in the lap times as the, the dry line appeared and the tyres and the, and the track and the fuel load were optimised. That strategy became the perfect one. He was able to pull out huge chunks of time on the others. But then as uh, late on, there's a second safety car called as uh, Rosberg. Nico Rosberg crashes at the swimming pool on lap 62. Heavy impact. Uh, goes a little bit wide into the first uh, left-hander of the first chicane. Clouts the inside barrier of the right-hander. Bounces across the track a couple of times. And the Williams is destroyed. But he comes out unhurt. So behind the safety car, it's Hamilton. And then it's Kibitza, who's got ahead of Massa through the pit stops again. And then Massa's in third. And Adrian Sutil is in fourth place for Force India. And he's sandwiched between Massa in third and Raikkonen in fifth. And there's a brilliant radio message um, from his engineer. He goes... Well, you, you're fighting for position, and the car in front is Massa, and the car behind you, and he has like a little giggle, is, is Raikkonen, as though he can hardly believe what's going on. And they're heading for a fairy tale result, Force India's first ever points. They've been through the middle a bit, that team, uh, at this point in time. They, they were Jordan, but the money ran out, and they changed owners in 2006, and then 2007, and then in 2008. So they were Spiker, and they were Midland, and now they're Force India. And they're heading for a fourth place at Monaco. So they get restarted behind, from behind a safety car. And the commentators, uh, James Allen and Martin Brundle, they're saying how Raikkonen can't afford to have an accident if he wants to uh, keep up a, a charge to retain his, his world championship as the reigning world champion that year. Coming out of the tunnel after the restart, Kimi loses control over the bumps, plunges the nose of the Ferrari into the rear of the Force India, and disaster has struck for Force India. Kimi recovers to 8th place, but uh, Sutil had diffuser damage. He's out, retires in the pit lane. It's such a cruel example of how Formula 1 can have you flying high before your dreams are dashed completely. You know, it, Similar to Damon Hill. Looks set for victory, looks set for a great result, but then circumstances and... Sometimes other drivers uh, get in the way and ruin it for you, which is a real shame. And you could see the dejection of the, the mechanics and the uh, team personnel at Force India on that day. It was, it was really sad to see that they, they'd worked so hard and put all that effort in. And they'd taken advantage of, of the conditions and done a great race, only for Kimi to, not on purpose, but to uh, to kind of ruin it for them in the end. To finish up though on that one, Hamilton keeps his head, comes home in the lead, wins the race, takes his first win in Monaco. And he's followed home by Kibitza and Massa. And obviously Hamilton would go on to win the World Championship that year by a single point in a rather dramatic fashion. So our final race that we're going to look at is the 2004 event. And this is Yana Trulli's finest hour. 
2004 had been dominated in the opening rounds by Ferrari. They had the amazing 2004 car driven by Schumacher and Barrichello. So when Jano Trulli popped the Renault onto pole position at Monaco, it was a bit of a welcome change. Ralph Schumacher qualified second for Williams, Jensen Button was third for BAR, and the second Renault of Fernando Alonso was fourth. So the race gets underway and Alonso jumps into second place ahead of Button. And lap three, they, uh, lap two I think it was because they had an aborted start. Um, lap two, the uh, safety car is called because of a huge accident for Giancarlo Fisichella in the Sauber. He's upside down and he's gone over the back of David Coulthard. So Takuma Sato's engine blows up on the way into to back the high-speed left-hander and it leaves this massive cloud of smoke completely blinding the drivers behind as they enter the corner and go through it. So some drivers are slowing, some are coming in a bit faster, they're trying to judge it. It's impossible. Uh, it was inevitable that it was going to be an accident. So DC slows the McLaren that he's in uh, and Fisichella doesn't see it, crashes into the back of the the McLaren takes off its rear wing and he flies over the back of him somersaults out of the race and he's upside down propped up against the barriers so that takes a few laps to clear up and sort out Fizzy was perfectly okay though proving how far safety had come by that point so Alonso jumped into second at the start as I mentioned Renault's clever starting system helping him along the way and they ran first and second Similarly to uh, 1982, Renault first and second, and they reached lap 41. So Ralph Schumacher, who had qualified second, took a 10-place uh, engine penalty, so he started 12th. And obviously it's very tricky to make progress from back there, as uh, David Coulthard found out in 2001, when he got stuck behind Enrique Bernaldi, having stalled from pole position on the formation lap. So truly laps Ralph Schumacher, and... Alonso was ferociously trying to keep up and he made his pass on Ralph in the tunnel, which is a touch unwise, but Alonso was uh, a young and feisty character uh, at that point. He's just uh, an older feisty character now. Uh, so he makes the pass and it be, he goes on the outside. Ralph hasn't given him the racing line. So he runs wide, gets onto the marbles and has a huge accident. So he's crashed into the outside wall, he's spinning around, the wheels are crushed and they're hanging off. And he's sliding down towards the chicane backwards at you know well over 100 miles an hour probably. Uh, but he wasn't bothered about that, he was still frustrated at not being given the racing line. And this was evidenced uh, by the hand gesture that he uh, gave to the younger Schumacher brother as Ralph passed the wreckage of the Renault while Alonso was still in the car. So, uh, you know, talk about getting your priorities right, Fernando. Safety car is inevitably called out again, and Jano truly pits, and this leaves Michael Schumacher in the lead, and it seems that the, the luck of Michael is hard at work once again, leaving him on course to win. Um, but behind the safety car, as they're preparing to, to get going again, they're in the tunnel. Um, the quirk of the... Uh, tunnel in Monaco and they're warming tyres and brakes and 
the pictures cut to Schumacher coming out of the tunnel with a wheel bent the wrong way and the front wing missing. Turns out that Schumacher is warming his brakes. He stamps on the brakes. He's locked up. And Montoya is trying to do the same, but it's caught him out. And he has to dive to the inside to avoid Schumacher, who clearly hasn't seen him and turns across, um, I think, to avoid him in the safety car. He hits uh, Montoya, loses control, and spears into the barrier on the other side. And they were completely caught out by the darkness of the tunnel. You know, it's the right thing to do to warm your tyres and brakes, but was it the most sensible thing to do it in the tunnel? So Schumacher's out of the race, and this leaves Yano truly in the lead. And he holds off uh, Jensen Button, who chased him down as best he could, and put him on as much pressure as possible to try and find a way past uh, to claim his first win. But it ultimately goes to Yano Trulli. It's his first and only win. It's his finest hour in a Formula One car. And ironically, uh, by the end of the 2004 season, he's sacked from Renault. His results sort of drop off a cliff from there. Jacques Villeneuve takes his place in the Renault for the last two or three races. And the year after... Uh, Fernando Alonso becomes world champion, so it's a question of what is a question of what could have been for Yano had he kept it all together that season at Renault. He, he, it might not have been him uh, struggling with the Toyota team; it might have been someone else. But he could he could have had a serious crack at the world championship. So Button takes the second place, and Barrichello claims third for Ferrari. Obviously, we've had a couple of really good. Uh, interesting races over the last few years in the turbo hybrid era 2016 stands out as an exciting one um, Hamilton getting the strategy uh, the the alternative strategy right again when he stayed out longer on the full wets instead of going for inters and then the Red Bull mishap in the pit, pit lane to uh, cost Daniel Ricciardo win, winning and Daniel Ricciardo making amends for that in 2018, even though he'd lost uh, power in his power unit uh, through the MGUK. I think it was. I think it was the MGUK that, that failed, so he lost 160 brake horsepower. But similar to Mansell and Senna, you, you can't really find a way past him, Monica. It's very tricky. Even Verstappen last year, when Hamilton was struggling on the medium tyres towards the end, Verstappen knew he had a penalty, a time penalty, that was going to be applied for a unsafe for release in the pit lane, dived down the inside, he still couldn't make the pass. Um, and Hamilton was clever, he put his car in all the right places, and so did Ricardo. As long as you put your car in the right place and you don't make any mistakes at Monaco, if you're in front, you're going to stay there, and you'll be just fine. So, that's my five best Monaco Grand Prix. Obviously, we, we hope for a few more great races like this, but the thing that I think that makes these ones stand out so much is the fact that for every two or three processional ones, you do get one absolutely spectacular race. And you can't have them amazing races every year. I think we'd, we'd all get a bit, uh, not to say bored, but it would become the norm for races to be completely unpredictable or, or exciting every, every week. You'd need some form of... Um, continuity and uh, chaos is not 
continuity, unfortunately. But Monaco can provide some great races, and these are just a few examples. So it's not all doom and gloom when you are uh, around Monaco and you're not in the lead. So a quick roundup on the latest F1 news over the last week. Uh, it's been announced today that McLaren are probably going to lose around 70 of their F1 staff because the McLaren group are going to have to cut about a quarter of its workforce. So this is a response to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, they were the first team to furlough staff. Um, so it's a bit of a shame because no one wants to see people losing jobs and it's no fault of their own but um, these companies have got to do the right thing if they keep staff on and they don't have the money they're going to go out of business no one wants to see that so you know, there's potentially good staff available that could end up elsewhere and still make some very good careers um, the implementation of the 145 million dollar cost cap um, is also probably going to have an effect on the size of F1 teams across the board. Um, you know, cutting spending is going to be high on the agenda for all these all these teams, so they can work within the limits and not get any unnecessary penalties. So, what are they going to do with the staff? You can't you can't just. Well, you'd hope that they don't just throw them all onto the scrap heap. You'd hope that there's something. Um, positive that they can do with them. Um, other news, um, again, coronavirus related. Um, it looks like we could definitely have a British Grand Prix or at least a race at Silverstone. Uh, so hopefully we're going to get two. Um, and it looks like the uh, plan is going to be saved by the government in the UK because uh, the rumours have suggested that the Prime Minister himself, Boris Johnson, has uh, intervened and said, make F1 happen. Um, it looked like the, the announcement of the uh, quarantine rules for people coming from abroad into the UK would put the race at risk. Um, there was an option to move it further into the summer. So instead of being in July, it could be at the end of August. If they'd reassess the situation or have more time to work on an exemption rule but it looks like it's a positive step for the British Grand Prix and the second race whatever it's going to be called uh, the Silverstone Grand Prix or maybe some sponsor will come in and pay some big money to have their name all over it um, but it, it, it's positive it's a good step um, and we, we want as many races as possible on the calendar this year so hopefully if we can get at least one at Silverstone for the British fans to enjoy that would be Fantastic. Um, on a, on the note of the double headers, like the the Austria race and the Silverstone pair, it'll be interesting to see what they call the second one because they've got the Austrian Grand Prix and then the British Grand Prix. Obviously, they can't have two races with the same name. Um, so I, I think you'll see Austrian Grand Prix and then the Red Bull Ring Grand Prix because it's called the Red Bull Ring. Um, I'd like to see it called the Silverstone Grand Prix or the, the English Grand Prix or something like that because it is in England, but it is part of Britain, of course. Um, hopefully we don't get like a big... It would be good to have a, a major sponsor back it, but 
I don't think that that should be the way that they look first. I think they should find a way of calling it something that, that relates back to Formula One. Um, but we'll wait and see. But it's a positive step for Formula One 2020 as a season. And hopefully we can get going on the 5th of July. I'm really looking forward to it. You go through the winter and you crave the Formula One action uh, because it's not there. And that excitement builds um, as you get closer and closer to the first race. But even though we've got the 5th of July as a, as a start date, it's not set in stone. So we can't get too excited just yet. Uh, but hopefully it'll get confirmed. And then as we get closer to it, the excitement can build and everyone can feel that energy again about going racing. Well, that's it. We've reached the finish line. The chequered flag has fallen. And that is the end of another podcast episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you could subscribe on your chosen podcast provider, uh, that would be great. And notify yourselves of when we release another episode. Um, if you haven't already, check out our website at uh, fiveredlightspodcast.wixsite.com slash 5rlpodcast. And check us out on Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, we are 5 Red Lights. And on Twitter, we are 5 underscore red underscore lights. I'll see you in the next episode, guys. For the meantime, stay safe, stay racy, and have a great week.